Live from the Pacific Northwest, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. Real. True. Stories. May the narrative be with you. The poet David White says, There is no house like the house of belonging. From my junior and senior years of high school, I went to this incredible little school called Argenta Friends School. Argenta is a little community, about 100 people, in the mountains of British Columbia, the north end of Kootenai Lake, which is 80 miles long and a mile wide. It looks like Norway. Big snow mountains, forests everywhere, glaciers, and this long, clear lake. It was, school was started by some Quakers who moved up there from the U.S. in the 50s to get away from the terrible U.S. politics of the time, Joe McCarthy and loyalty oaths, all that. And they started a high school for their kids and invited a few other Quaker kids from Canada and the U.S. to come. And by the time I got there in 1969, there were 20 students. And one of them is here. <laughs> Incredible. Um, it was like living 100 years ago. Uh, in Argenta, there was no store, there was no gas station, there was nowhere to spend money. It was just this cluster of wooden cabins along a dirt road. And all the buildings were heated with wood. The students cut all the wood. I learned to use an axe and a chainsaw and milk a cow and cook on a wood stove. Uh, we started every school day with half an hour of silence, looking out over the lake from the log meeting house at Meadow Mountain. And I was so happy there. Uh, it was such a contrast to Cleveland High School. <laughs> Which I went to as a freshman, and at the time I went there, <clears throat> There were 2,000 kids, and none of them were Quakers but me. <laughs> and I was writing, you know, terrible anti-war poetry and <laughs> trying to go to school barefoot. I wrapped ribbons around my feet so the authorities would think I had sandals on. <laughs> and the whole, you know, the football, pep squad, popularity, dress code culture was just like sandpaper on my skin. I definitely did not belong at Cleveland High School. But at Argenta, I was with other kids. We were wearing work boots and flannel shirts and um, walking along this, the dirt road at night under the incredible mountain stars, no street lights, you know, singing and running naked to the lake from the sauna and uh, reading Carlos Castaneda and Charles Olson. And, uh, I felt so known and loved and connected to my, the people I was at school with. We lived with the staff families and I was definitely in the house of belonging, for sure. And all my burners were turned on. So when I left there, I thought, it is not fair 
that only 20 kids a year get to go to a school like this. I get to have this kind of magical, empowering school experience because surely there are other kids for whom the whole industrial high school thing is not a good fit. So I was so empowered by Argenta that I thought I could do this. I could start a school like this. And I will. And this is what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to give back this gift that was given to me. So I... Ten years later, I graduated from college, and I set out to do that. And uh, I recruited a couple of other young teachers, and one of them is here, too. <laughs> and we made a plan. We would have an urban Quaker high school in Portland, and kids, we'd have about 20 kids, like in Argenta, and uh, they would live with Quaker families locally, and we knew we couldn't recreate the whole wilderness dimension of Argenta, but we thought we could recreate this sense of belonging and this sweetness of connection and intimacy and the real-world skills and simple living. We could do that. So to be a Quaker school, we had to have the sponsorship of a Quaker meeting. And in this case, Quaker meeting does not mean the hour of silence that we have on Sunday morning we sit together, <clears throat> but the body, the congregation. Um, and every Quaker school in the country has, is under the care of, of some Quaker meeting, which provides continuity and help and advice and support. And so we took this plan to the Portland meeting, Multnomah meeting, and they said, no, it's too big a project for us to take care of. You should take this to the yearly meeting, which is the body, the, all the coalition of all the meetings in the Northwest. So we got ready to do that. And... <clears throat> went up and down the Willamette Valley, talked to Salem, Eugene, Corvallis meetings, and drummed up support. And then July 1982, Bothell, Washington, um, is the moment. So I'm standing at the mic, looking out at a sea of Quakers, and there are about 200, about this many people. I can see them better than I can see you. <laughs> and... Uh, there's kind of an age thing going, I'm 28, and there are other young people, but there's a lot of older people, a lot of gray hair, and I'm pretty well known to lots of these people. I'm, I'm connected here, I, um, loved, respected, and I make my proposal for this Quaker school, and um, the discussion begins. It's a kind of wonderful, sober, thoughtful discussion Quakers are really expert at, and the discussion takes this very unnerving turn for me along the lines of, should we be allowing our best teachers, like you, Tina, to give their attention to a private school when the public schools need so much help? And wouldn't it be wrong and elitist of us to support a private school? So. This is not, I was not prepared for this conversation, and it, after about 45 minutes, uh, they say no. So, we settle into silence, and thank God, Quakers settle into silence at, 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 all the time, at any given point. <laughs> and in the silence, someone sings a song. 
Live up to the light, the light that thou hast. Live up to the light and remember, my child, you are never alone, no, never. So live up to the light thou hast, and more will be granted thee, will be granted thee. So live up to the light thou hast. That made me feel better, but not a lot better. <laughs> I felt terrible. I felt so raw and vulnerable, as if I had been scolded for my beautiful vision. <clears throat> so now, now, it's 30 or so years later, and I'm looking back at that moment when what I thought I was going to do with my life turned out to be not what I was going to do, and I am asking myself, so did I do that? Did I live up to the light I had? And it would be very easy to say I did not. Um, it's, it, I veered around the country, Alaska, Pennsylvania. I had nine different jobs. I taught in some Quaker schools. Other, I did a lot of other things. I had a couple of divorces, this terrible 11-year struggle with infertility. And I, I feel like you know, a sled dog that's been dragging a skateboard around the backyard. What I wanted to do was be part of the team that was taking the serum to Nome. I wanted to do something no bigger. But of course, it all depends on what you mean by living up to the light. And as I look back over that kind of a lot of chaos and disturbance and distress, I see that over and over I've been plucked out of the fire. I have been helped and nurtured and encouraged and uh, taught by something mysterious. For instance, it's a small but important instance, on the morning after that fiasco at early meeting, I had the dream. A mouse, a white mouse, came out of the wall of my house and stood on his hind legs and did this tap dance, <laughs> which I cannot do. <laughs> but I could hear his little clicky feet making this little, um, you know, rhythm on the floor, on the hardwood floor, and he had this big finish. <laughs> and I woke up laughing. And I had gone to bed so miserable. <clears throat> so what struck me about this dream was that some part of me obviously was not miserable. There was a part of me that was bigger than my distress. That was wiser, calmer, more amused. It had the wherewithal to hire the mouse, you know? <laughs> to cheer me up. And I thought, how incredible is that? You know, occupying this same time zone is another, more intelligent, freer being. 
sharing the same space with me. So I thought, that is, that is amazing. And I made it my business to pay a lot of attention to my dreams because that was my access to this bigger space that I somehow lived with. And they've paid, a, my dreams have paid a lot of attention to me as well over that time and handed me clues and encouraged me and dragged me and nudged me and hassled me and so on so that now I can say I really do live in the house of belonging in my life. And it is, that's not just the beautiful house that I live in with my daughter and my dad and stepmother, but my body and my sense of being in the world. I belong here. And there's such a sense of sweetness to that. And I give credit to my dreams for that. And I feel like living up to the light for me has meant apprenticing myself to that big space, to the mystery, which is not just in me, but outside me as well. And allowing it to hold me and teach me and carry me like a river carries a leaf. <laughs>